Morning, church. It's so good to be back with you this week. Had a minor microphone malfunction here when I was standing up and trying to put this on my belt loop. Try to fix that real quick. I will tell you, I told somebody earlier today when I was walking in, it's much warmer here this time uh, than it was last time I was here. Uh, and that's okay. So it'll stay there. I've, I've heard great things about your search process. I know there's a, an announcement coming a little bit later today about where, where you stand there. I want you to know that I, along with many others, have been praying about that process. I know that this is an exciting time, uh, kind of an anxious time as you draw closer there. And we've been praying about the, the family that will be with you here at some point in the future and, and just have confidence and, and faith that God is working on you and working on that family as they work to be here in just a short period of time. So I'm eager to hear news about that as it develops. I want to begin this morning by, by asking you a very fundamental question. Uh, what do you believe? Maybe one of the most basic questions in all of life. And I know that we're in a, in a church building, so it may be tempting to give that uber-religious answer. I believe in God. Or I believe in Jesus. Those are the, the church answers to give. And if you really believe that, that's great. But I, but I, wonder, I wonder how you might answer that question if, if I were to ask you that question in a different setting. So imagine tomorrow morning, Monday morning, wherever you work, wherever your office is, I were to walk in in front of everybody there, and I would just ask you that very just basic question, what do you believe? How would you answer that? Students in here, uh, some of the high school students or, or children, if I were to walk into your school when school starts here in just a few weeks, I know it's, it's difficult to say in a few weeks, but it's coming. What do you believe? How would you respond to that? It's one of the most basic questions about life. And some of the most well-known people in the history of the world have been asked that question. And I'm going to have a couple other answers. Martin Luther King Jr. was asked, what do you believe? It's kind of a thing that he said, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. And then he says this, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. That's a great I believe statement. And Frank, uh, the young girl, teenage girl that was hiding with her family for a number of months, a couple of years as the Nazis began to invade Europe. She says, despite everything, I believe that people are really good at heart. What a statement coming from someone like that. Winston Churchill, this is one of my favorites, he says, I believe we are all worms. But he says, I believe I am a glowworm. <laughs> Winston Churchill was never lacking uh, in confidence. Those of you too young to know, Winston Churchill was a great leader of England during World War II. What do you believe? What do you believe is your purpose for being on this planet? 1951, Edward Murrow hosted a radio program on CBS entitled This I Believe. And this program ran for five years. And over these five years, some of the best-known people of that time had an occasion to write an essay and then read their essay out loud. 
that described what they believed and, and why they believed. These are the core values of their life. So over the years, some of the, the, the best-known people of time, uh, Helen Keller, Eleanor Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, some of the giants of their time wrote these essays out and read them over the air. And that show sparked such imagination in the world and the international community that it started an international organization. And they've now founded a, a, an organization and a website and they've archived over 125,000 of these statements for people all over the world answering these questions. This I believe. This is what I believe. Why do you suppose that there are so many people in the world eager, anxious to wrestle with, spend time meditating upon a question like that? tell you why. Because a statement like that gives direction for your life. If you can answer that fundamental question, what do I believe? If you can answer that question with crystal clear clarity, it gives you a reason for living. This is why I'm here. This is why I exist. This is what I'm dedicating my life to accomplishing. This morning, I want us to consider that question. What do we believe? Well, there's a conversation uh, that's recorded in Mark's gospel that marked, I think, I think, one of the most pivotal moments of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it's the very center of Mark's gospel. It's the, it's the hinge point of that gospel. Everything that happens before this conversation in Mark's gospel points toward this moment. And then everything that happens after this conversation in Mark's gospel points back to it. It's that fundamental. It's the center point of the ministry. And even more than that, it, it marked a turning point in Jesus' ministry. And so if you look in Mark's gospel leading up to this conversation, before that, Jesus' ministry is in Galilee. It's going wonderfully well. The crowds are swelling. He's healing people that are coming. The crowds are growing bigger and larger every single day. And then this conversation takes place, and then everything changes. After this conversation, Jesus moves his ministry out of Galilee, and he begins to head toward Jerusalem. And do you remember what happened in Jerusalem? And the tenor of Jesus' message begins to change. It's not all about excitement. It's not all about energy anymore. Jesus spends a lot of time from this point forward talking about death and dying and suffering and the crowds go away. And everything hinges on this one moment in the gospel. This conversation has been called by some biblical scholars the, the fulcrum of Mark's gospel because everything hinges on this one moment. I want to read you this section of the gospel from Mark chapter 8 this morning, beginning in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples, they went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. 
Peter's great confession. And this one statement, Peter finally articulated what many of these folks had probably believed for a very long time. Though nobody had really said it out loud until this moment. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And what do they mean by that? He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that we have anticipated now for literally centuries at this moment. He's the one that will come and restore power to Israel. He will be our victorious general. He will sit on the seat of David. And he will lead Israel back to prominence among its place atop all of the world powers. This is what Peter meant by this statement. You are the Christ. And don't you know that some of them believed that it was him all along? I think back to other moments in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 6, you have this tremendous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, a story many of us know by heart. There's a detail of that story that I want to call your attention to this morning that you may have overlooked before. The crowds are there, the disciples are with Jesus, and they say, listen, it's time to eat. We need to send these people home so they can go eat. And you remember the story? Jesus says, no, we have plenty here to feed these folks. Just sit them down, and then we'll feed them with these loaves and fishes. But the detail I want you to remember is that when they sat them down, when the disciples sat the people down, notice that they sat them down in groups of fifties and hundreds. Why would they do that? See, that's how you organize an army. They believed that this was the moment possibly where the revolution would begin. They were organizing platoons and regiments. They were waiting for Jesus to become this victorious general. They thought today is the day when we lead the army against Rome. I wonder what it must have been like when Jesus was walking on water or the day where he calmed the storm. Don't you know that probably there were disciples there that thought to themselves, surely he is the one. And then maybe they had a conversation among themselves below deck. Just go ask him. No, you ask him. I don't want to ask him. You ask him. Back and forth and back and forth. And they've been arguing this perhaps for months. And here they are on the road to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus just asks the question that they'd been waiting to ask but were too afraid to do it. Who do people say that I am? And then turning directly to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? What he was really asking them was this. What do you believe about me? You're the Messiah, the Christ. Finally, someone said it. But even in that moment, Jesus knew that they didn't really understand. And that's why he tells them, don't tell anybody what you just said. There are a couple of times in Jesus' ministry where somebody will make a confession like this and, or he'll heal somebody and they recognize his identity and he'll tell them, don't tell anybody. And sometimes we think that the reason he does that is because his time has not yet come. They don't really need to know who he is yet. But in this particular instance in Mark, that's not what's going on. The reason he tells them, don't tell anybody, is because they didn't really know who he was. <laughs> When they said you were the Christ, you were the Messiah, what they meant is that he was this conquering general, leading an army into battle, ready for people to line up and get behind him. But that's not who he was. And that was not Jesus' mission. And that's why he tells them, don't tell anybody what you just said. And then we have one of the most important sections in the entire New Testament, maybe the entire Bible, 
right after this confession is made, Jesus does a couple of things. One, he tells them who he really is for the first time. Jesus tells them who he really is. And then after that, and this is just as important, he tells his disciples what it means to say, I believe Jesus is the Christ. Because that statement is loaded with meaning. You can't just say those words. It changes things. And he explains to them what it means to them to make a statement like that. I want you to listen as that story continued as he has this conversation with his disciples. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, all the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now he spoke plainly about this. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus returned and he looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with all the disciples. And he said this, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life for me and my gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then he said to them, I'll tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God coming with power. I find it interesting here that Jesus tells Peter, first of all, don't tell anybody who I am. And then immediately after he tells Peter, don't tell anybody who I am, the text says Jesus told them plainly who he was and what his mission was all about. And what he's doing here. In this little section in Mark chapter 8, what he's doing, he's redefining the term Christ for them. And he's going to continue to redefine this term Christ for them for the next eight chapters in Mark's gospel. All the way to Jerusalem. They were expecting this conquering general, this mighty general in the, in the lineage of David. But in fact, what Jesus was was a suffering servant. They came ultimately to, to be killed, to give his own life as a sacrifice. That is not what they were expecting. This reminds us, you know, that just saying the words is not enough. Just saying the words out loud, you have to understand what they mean. Church, it's not enough to simply say, I believe that Jesus is God's son. What does that mean? And how does that I believe statement change your life? I believe statements are of crucial importance. If we really believe them, if we really internalize them and allow them to set direction for our life, they change everything about us. Do you know this? Think about some of the people throughout history. Adolf Hitler believed, he really believed that Jewish people were inferior and that belief set in motion the mission for his life. 
And at the end of the day, he was responsible for the death of six million Jewish people, not to mention all the other deaths that he was responsible for. European explorers believed that the earth was round. (laughs) And that belief set in motion the mission that propelled them in life. There are others that said the world was flat. They said, oh, we're going to prove it. We're going to go out in our ships and we're we're going to go to these places in uncharted territory, places people have never been before. And they said, you'll fall off the end of the earth. And they said, no, we won't. Because we believe this thing about the world. And they went on to settle all of these different continents. There are new narratives, new beliefs that are always emerging in our time. And these new beliefs and new ideas that are emerging, they will have consequence. They will lead to mission and they will lead to activism around the world. There are some people that believe today that American ideals and freedom are the only hope for the world. What are the implications of that belief 500 years from now? What does that look like? There are some people today that believe that Islam and Muslim people are dangerous and must be stopped at all costs. What are the implications of that? Two, three generations down the road. What does that look like? There are some people that believe all religions are the same and that to concentrate on distinctiveness in religion will lead to only hate and war. What's what's the lasting implications generations from now of religious pluralism? What does that look like in the world? Only time will tell. We don't know. But we do know that I believe statements have consequences. They always have. History has shown that if we really believe something and we allow that belief to set the direction of our life, it changes the world. And church, what we believe about God is of utmost importance. It's so important. To be honest, we live in a world in an age where there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to God. I'm not necessarily talking about are there people that believe in God, but rather what do people believe about God? There's a lot of uncertainty around that question. Maybe, maybe as much uncertainty now as there has ever been in the history of the world. According to a University of Chicago study, 25% of Americans, that's a pretty good chunk of Americans, 25% of Americans believe in some sort of reincarnation. That is that we were born again into this life from a previous life. A growing number of Americans, 33%, believe that religion is largely out of date and old-fashioned. 21% of Americans believe that the Bible is nothing more than an, an ancient book of fables and legends and history, moral precepts that are recorded by human people. I believe statements have implications. What are the implications of these beliefs? And how can the church engage a world in which there are so many pressing questions about God? How can we as the church function, live, engage mission, when there are so many people with so much uncertainty about God outside these walls, but let's be honest, some of these questions exist inside these walls as well. What does that mean for the church? How do we respond to this moment of uncertainty? Well, if it helps, uh, it may be 
helpful to you to, to remember and to know that we are not the first generation to experience a moment like this. There have been other times in history where there has been tremendous amounts of uncertainty. One of the most, one of the earliest times was in the very first century of Christianity. Sometimes we had this uh, unhealthy image of the first century church as if they had everything together, they had their act together, they were doing everything exactly as they should. But I want you to imagine what it must have been like to have been in the earliest days of the church where there was so much diversity among the people there. You had Jewish people and Roman people. You had Greek people. You had folks that had never believed in a God before. And they were all coming together to form this new emerging world religion called Christianity. And they were trying to decide what's most important. What do we believe? There's so much diversity between us. What what do we have to agree on? So they began to define orthodoxy. And they began to develop statements to help them remember and clearly define what are the most important elements of the faith. We can disagree about all these other things out here, but, but what do we have to agree on? And they developed these things called creeds. Now I know creeds sometimes has a it's, it's a bad word, especially in our tradition. In fact, in the Stone Camel tradition, the Restoration Movement, Churches of Christ, some of the earliest leaders and preachers in our movement would say things like, we have the only creed we have is the Bible. And we rejected creeds because they were divisive and they separated people. And creeds certainly have separated Christians throughout centuries without question. But I'm not talking about denominational creeds. I'm not talking about a Methodist creed or a Presbyterian creed or any other creed that separates one kind of a Christian from another. I'm talking about these statements that the earliest Christians developed, first century, second century, when they were trying to determine what do we believe? What is at the center of our faith? And some of these statements that they created even predated the New Testament. (laughs) In fact, when they were developing the New Testament, when they were collecting all the books that were out there, and there were many books out there, that they had to decide whether or not to include in our New Testament, in our Bible, in order to make that decision. One of the things that they did is they would line those books up in terms of their, their emphasis up next to these ancient creeds. And so this really says what the Apostles' Creed has always said, so we're going to let it in. But this one really doesn't, so we're not going to include it. That's how important these statements were in the earliest days of the church. This was the gospel. We may disagree on all these other things, but not this. But there's a really helpful uh, document that we have. It's called the Apostolic Tradition. It dates from the late 2nd century, perhaps early 3rd century. It's, it's kind of difficult to tell, but it's written by a, a church leader named Hippolytus. And the reason this is such a rich resource is because he describes for us some of the things that were happening in the 2nd century church. Like, what happened at baptism? When they took communion, what did that look like? When they met together in house churches, what did their service look like? Have you ever had questions like that? I think that's fascinating. And so here we have this document written by somebody late 2nd century, early 3rd century, and he just lays it out for us. Kind of like an order of worship, and this is what they were doing. And one of the most fascinating pieces of this document is the part where Hippolytus describes what happened at baptism. And he says, in that era, when somebody was finally baptized and they had the baptismal service, 
the baptismal candidates were asked three questions, three distinct questions before they were baptized. And here they were. First question, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And they would say yes or no. And the second question they were asked, do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, was dead and was buried, rose again on the third day, alive from the dead, ascended into heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father, and has come to judge the quick and the dead? Yes or no? And then they were asked this third question. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the Holy Church? Do you believe in the resurrection of the flesh? Why do you suppose they were asked these questions? I mean, at, at the most pivotal moment of their Christian journey, here they were trying to decide whether or not to accept Jesus as their Lord, and they were asked these specific questions. Because in the months, sometimes in the years leading up to their baptism, they learned precisely what each of these statements meant. They learned all the implications about what it means to say that I believe that God is real. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe that Jesus is God's Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. They spent time learning and meditating upon the the emphasis that these statements created. They learned these statements form the heart of the Christian faith. And they learned this. We may agree to disagree on all this other stuff, but we agree on this. This is the center of our faith, the identity of God. In, in my years of ministry, I've had parents come up to me occasionally. It's typically when their children are reaching the age of baptism, or when I was growing up, we called the age of accountability. When they were approaching the age of accountability, a parent would come up to me and they would say, hey, my, my son, my daughter is thinking about this. And it would always boil, the long conversation always boiled down to this. What do they need to know? There's all this stuff with religion. But what do they need to know? Like, give me, give me the bullet points. Such an important question. Have you ever asked that question? You know, we live in such an age of uncertainty. I work on a college campus. One of the reasons I love working on a college campus is because we interact with students, with people. They're in such a formative moment in their life. They're asking questions about important things that they've never asked before. And they're forming habits that will really dictate the movements for the rest of their life. And I have students come and ask questions all of the time about things like Islam or Judaism or homosexuality or gay marriage, Republicans, Democrats, war, denominations, unity within diversity, tolerance, freedom. Now we can spend all day talking about each one of these in turn. But you know, each one of these elements, each one of these ideas is either directly or indirectly tied to some matter of faith. And they're asking important questions. People in our world are asking, what is most important? 
What is central to my faith? What do I need to believe? What can we agree to disagree about? And what is uncompromising? Boy, that's an important question, church. You should know this about me. We don't know each other well enough yet, so I'll just have to tell you. I really value unity in the church. I really do. And if you were to ask me and and, and to quiz me all afternoon, you, you would find out that I believe that most of the stuff, most of the stuff that we disagree about is not very important. I just think that the things that are most important, it's a really small list, but those things are really important. And there are some things that we need to compromise on. And we need to just say, you know what? You can believe that and I'm going to believe this and that's okay. I still love you. (laughs) I'm still your brother. I'm still your sister. Let's still worship together. Let's do all of these things. Most of the things fall in that category. And church, there are some things that are non-negotiable. There are some things that are really, really important. There are some things upon which we cannot compromise. Now, that doesn't mean that with these things, we build walls around ourselves and can't associate with anybody that disagrees with us. But it does mean that there are some things that we cannot sacrifice, even for the sake of unity. There are some things that are so central, so core to the faith that have always been there. They are unchanging. They are central to the gospel. Now, I'm not with you every week. I wish I was right now because I'd I'd love to spend several weeks just going with you, going through with you some of these major central points of our faith. But I will say, I'm going to be with you in two weeks. And so for every time I'm going to be with you from now until you find a preacher, I, I want us to spend some time talking about this together. What do we believe? And in short, I want us to complete this sentence. I believe, and then we're going to finish the sentence. So in two weeks, when we come back together, we're going to unpack this statement. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Just that statement. We're going to camp out on that statement and talk about what that means. What are the implications of a statement like that? And if I'm here again, we'll move on to some other. I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus is God's son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to camp out on those fundamentals, the, the core tenets of the faith. For over 20 centuries, Christians have viewed these kinds of I believe statements as the heart of the faith. These things are, are non-negotiable. And these things have serious implications about the way that we live. Because a really good I believe statement, church, is going to change your life. It's not just a word. It's not just a sentence. And I think that's why Jesus had that conversation with Peter and the other disciples on the road that day. It really comes down to that. And that is why once those disciples heard the real I believe statement, (laughs) Jesus demanded that everything else change about their ministry. They couldn't keep doing the things they were always doing. He demanded a new, a new day, a significant change. The ministry shifted, and they got really real with each other. When we clearly articulate what we believe about God, that necessitates that we change our lives. That necessitates that we become something new. 
And I want us to spend some time together over the next several weeks when we're together talking about that. I believe it's a fundamental question. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your son, for your spirit, for your being as father, for the ways in which you created us and sustain us even today. God, we, we confess to you and acknowledge that there's so many questions in our world. So much disagreement, so, so much fighting, so much uncertainty. God, we crave stability. We crave assurance. We crave a real knowledge of who you are. So God, we pray that, that even now you'll begin to open up to us in new ways, new insight, new clarity about who you are and what that means for our lives. Help us to know you more. May that knowledge change us into new people, ready to bless this world as you have always blessed this world. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. In a moment, Raymond is going to lead us in a song of invitation. We want to extend that invitation to you. If you need the prayers of this body, we want to give you a chance to be prayed over this morning. Uh, today could be the day that you want to put on Christ in baptism and join those disciples that we talked about from centuries ago in becoming a child of God in that special way and acknowledging that Jesus is Lord of your life and the Son of God. We want to give you a chance to do that and perhaps put on Christ in baptism this morning. If you can do that or any other way in which this body of Christ can help you this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and sing together.